From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Advances in surgical techniques means that now heart surgery doesn't always involve cracking open the chest. Minimally invasive and robot-assisted surgery are better options for some patients. On today's program, we'll learn more from a Mayo Clinic expert. Typical length of stay for a patient having robotic heart surgery is three to four days in contrast to six days, sometimes seven days when it's done open. And the recovery is usually three to four weeks as opposed to six to eight weeks. So everything is cut in half. Also on the program, aspirin exacerbated respiratory disease, an ENT condition also known as Samter's triad. And understanding gender identity. All that along with a health minute from Vivian Williams right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. If you've been told that you or a loved one needs heart surgery, you're probably wondering exactly what that means. You know, for most of us, our first thoughts are about open heart surgery. They crack your chest, they fix whatever is wrong inside, they sew you up, and you're probably in for a pretty long recovery. But for a lot of people, there is now an alternative, and it is called minimally invasive heart surgery. In minimally invasive heart surgery, also called robotic surgery, your surgeon makes one or more small incisions between your ribs, and then surgical instruments, along with a tiny camera, are inserted through those little holes. Pretty cool. The surgical tools are connected to robotic arms that the surgeon controls with a computerized device. Who is a candidate for minimally invasive heart surgery? What procedures can be done using that robot? And what is recovery like? We're going to find out. Joining us in studio is the Chair of Cardiovascular Surgery at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Joe Duraney. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Duraney. Well, thank you. It's nice to be back. It's always good to have you. This has got to be pretty exciting for you and your uh, colleagues. Oh, yeah. I mean, the advances in cardiac surgery day-to-day, week-to-week, and year-to-year, it continues to be a specialty that really pushes the envelope in terms of trying to implement new things. And uh, we're doing a lot more with cardiology now, a lot of procedures. These minimally invasive procedures are done in conjunction with them. Uh, yeah, it's exciting. It's an exciting field. When you started doing heart surgery, I mean, what, 20 years ago? Yeah, 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 that's right. Uh, did you ever imagine that you'd be doing it this way? Well, the minimally invasive thing, you made the reference to robotic, and there, robotic is one, uh, one method of minimally invasive surgery. Minimally invasive surgery refers to doing sort of a standard operation through a very small incision, and sometimes that small incision doesn't require the need for a robot, but the really small incisions are helped with a robot. And so I would say that many of the minimally invasive cardiac surgery procedures that we do here at Mayo do utilize the robot, but there are some others that we do that may require just a small incision in the front or a small incision on the side that you can do with a camera or without a camera and without the robot. So it's uh, a lot of options out there. Aside from sounding absolutely horrible and terrible, what is wrong with cracking the chest? Well, <laughs> crack is a bad word. For surgeons don't like that I shouldn't word, have crack. Said that. But, yeah. but no, I think that, of course, the less invasive it can be, the lower the potential problems, less bleeding, less likelihood for infection. Uh, it makes the 
challenge for the surgeon to do the operation a little more difficult, but with the improvements in technology and instrumentation, we do have the means to do essentially the same operation through a much smaller incision. It always needs to be left to the discretion of, of the surgeon, and I, I do think that while the I think the most important message for the patient and the public is that it still is a requirement that you do the proper operation, and I would not compromise the proper operation for a, an incision that's a little bit smaller. I mean, that's not a good trade, but if you can do the proper operation through a smaller incision, and we can for many, then it's a good thing for patients, it's a good thing for the doctors and surgeons, it's a good thing for the recovery, it's a good thing for society with people getting back to work earlier and so on and so forth. And when you say robot, tell us what you mean by robot. So one of the advantages, so you, you, you start with a very small incision, but then instead of trying to put instruments through that small incision to work, there are other port sites that are basically like the size of a, of a big pen. And, and usually there's three of them where the arms of the robot go in. So you have the arms of the robot and at the end of the arm is the a surgical instrument, whether it's a scissors or it's a needle driver or it's a forcep. And so the, the, the beauty of the robot is that it, they're so sophisticated. It's basically a very expensive computer. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the movements are very, very fine. And so you have the, the ability to do very, very fine, delicate surgery through really teeny incisions because you're not, you're not fighting the much longer instrumentation that your regular hands would need to drive. Now they're very, very fine, very small, narrow instruments that with very, very fine, accurate motor control. What I don't understand about robotic surgery or about minimally invasive surgery is if you can do some heart procedures, why can't you do all of them this way? Yeah. The certain procedure, so when we do robotic heart surgery, the incision is on the side of the chest. And so when you do an incision on the side, that only allows you to do a shorter list of procedures because you don't have access. So, for example, the aortic valve, which is in the front, or coronary surgery, which may require you to be in the left side and on the bottom and in the front. You wouldn't be able to do all that through one little incision on the side. So certain procedures lend itself much better for a minimally invasive approach. Why can't you do these small incisions just right above the heart on the chest, right on the front of the chest? Well, you, it's a, it's, again, it's a great question. The advantage of going through the side is that the anesthesia team can collapse the lung. And so you have this big space oh. where the arms can go in and move around. Trying to do that in the front with a robot, it, you can't do it, which is one of the reasons why you can't even use the robot in very small children because there's not enough space in the chest, even when the lung is collapsed, for the arms to sort of move around. I guess you got that breastplate there, too. Right. Same right. problem right. as a traditional surgery. Exactly. And how do you control these robotic arms? Well, they're com- controlled with a console. Again, it's a very sophisticated computer. So at the bedside, you have the robot which is the which is the the instrument that mans the inst- that mans the instruments that you actually put into the patient then there is a console it's like a cockpit that sits in the corner of the room that's where you are that's what well there's one surgeon there and there's one surgeon at the bedside cuz somebody has to pass 
stuff in and out, sutures and, and re- valves okay. or whatever it is that you're doing, some of the knot tying occurs at the bedside because it's a little more efficient than the robot doing it. But the visualization is is really unparalleled. I mean, the, and everybody in the operating room can see it because there's multiple screens around the operating room. So as an educational tool, it's really probably the most powerful way to teach someone because everybody can see exactly what's going on stitch by stitch and step by step. Did you have to, having done everything open in your first part of your career, how long did it take you to learn to do this? I mean, and if you had played computer games as a kid, would you have been better at it? Well, you bring up a very, very good point. And right now at the society level, we are trying to understand what the best training paradigm is for people that want to do minimally invasive and robotic surgery. Now, I think I actually come from a background that sets yourself up the best for minimally invasive surgery, and that is someone who had historically done all of these operations open. So you then have a full command of the operation. You know where all the pitfalls are. You know where all the steps are that you have to be careful where you could do something harmful. And then it's just learning the technology of the robot. And I think that's the disadvantage for, for people that are just coming out of training is, you know, one of my, one of my mentors said when we started the robot, he had said, make sure that you have complete ownership and command of the open operation so that you can deal with any of the troubles that you encounter with the robot. And for the new grad, they don't have that learning curve under their belt yet. They may be a little bit better with the technology. But as you know, as a surgeon, you know, you need to be a critical thinker, you need to have judgment, and you need to have technical ability, and you need to have intellect, and all that stuff needs to sort of work together for this to be successful. This is going to be a problem then for these new, stu- these new <laughs> no. students, because if the way that you learn is by doing it through the traditional way... You can, you're not doing that anymore. You, you, you can, you can learn. I think the learning curve is, is just a little longer when you're trying to get into the game as a new grad. Hmm. Where the learning curve for somebody who's a little more experienced, it's really just learning the technology. And some people may be better than that or not. You know, I spent a lot of time in the evening hours coming in and sitting down at the simulator. And practicing with it. But, you know, it's like everything else. You practice, you get better at it. You practice more, you get really good at it. And the more you practice, you can get great at it. And it's just all about hard work and discipline. How often does it happen that you are doing something robotically or you plan to do it robotically and you have to switch gears? You say, you know what, we got to open this. Rarely. And, and, And the reason why that rarely occurs is because the screening and the patient selection processes that are in place beforehand allow you to have to rarely do that. We have a screening process that we're relatively strict with, so the patients that we pick from the beginning are you're very, very confident. And when we have a patient that is on the borderline of whether or not they would be a candidate robotically, then we have two staff surgeons evaluate everything and both need to agree to do it so that you really are sort of optimizing success. So we've done just about a 1,000 robotic mitral procedures here now. 
So the mitral valve, you've replaced it or repaired? Most of them are repairs. I mean, okay. I would say that 99% of them are repairs. There's been a very a very short list of replacements because most of the time you can repair the mitral valve. All right, the chair of cardiovascular surgery at the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Joe Duraney. Keep the heart beating. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk more about the benefits of minimally invasive heart surgery and also the complications. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Jives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with the chair of cardiovascular surgery at the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Joe DeRainey. We're talking about minimally invasive robotic. Well, they're actually a little bit of difference. Minimally invasive and robotic heart surgery. So uh, what procedures can you do robotically or minimally invasive? So the most common robotic procedure on the heart is mitral valve repair, followed by mitral valve replacement. But in this country mostly mitral valve repair because valves can be fixed. That is saved, preserved, the patient's own valve, and that's really what they want. Why do you say in this country? Well, I think that when you get to other countries, rheumatic valvular heart disease is much more prevalent, and some mm-hmm. those valves are more difficult to repair, and you're more likely to need to replace them. But we don't really see much rheumatic fever in this country because of antibiotic therapy and and access to good health care for pretty much all all citizens. Remind me and our listeners, where is the mitral valve? What does it do and what goes wrong with it? How can you repair it? So the mitral valve is a valve inside the left side of the heart. The left side of the heart is the side that gets all the oxygen-rich blood from the lungs and pumps it all to the body. And the mitral valve is the valve in between the lungs and that main pumping chamber. And the most common abnormality in this country, in North America, and mostly in the developed world, is what we call myxomatous degenerative mitral valve disease, where the leaflets get floppy, and the strings that support the leaflets get elongated, and they either stretch too much or they actually break. And when that happens, you end up with a problem where the valve leaks. So it's a leaky valve problem. And so that then when the left ventricle pumps, it pumps blood not just to the body, but part of it goes back up into the left atrium. Yes. It goes backwards. It goes backwards toward the lungs. And this is why patients will feel fatigued and shortness of breath and have trouble getting their breath, particularly when they exert themselves. Okay. Why does that valve, is that valve more complicated than others? Or why is it that that one goes bad so often? It's it, that valve is just a setup for that particular problem. You know, the, the anatomy of the valves inside the heart are a little a little different. You know, the the aortic valve, which is another valve with a common problem, um, where you get narrowed or leaky. There are no strings to that valve. Those are just little semilunar cusps. Um, so a different problem. All right, mitral valve. Uh, what about coronary artery disease? Uh, you can is, do. You can do if if a patient needs multiple coronary bypass grafts, they need a standard operation. If they need just one bypass graft, and there are some situations where that's the case, you can do it robotically or you can do it minimally invasively. And and then the cardiologist may be able to put stents in the other smaller arteries so that you're saving a big incision, and it's what we call a hybrid procedure, part surgery, part angioplasty with stent. 
And that would be a coronary artery that's not stentable for whatever reason. Well, not necessarily. The big, uh, you know, all of the the literature and data shows that the big artery on the front of the heart, the one that's often called the widow Widow maker, maker. Mm -hmm. that artery, when you use the internal mammary artery underneath the breastbone to bypass that artery, that's been shown in many studies all around the world there is a big survival benefit when you do that. So when that artery is involved, there is stronger consideration to doing bypass surgery, particularly if they're a diabetic or they have other arteries with narrowings. When it occurs in isolation, the minimally invasive approach is is, is really could be quite ideal. Well, it's a lot easier for patients for their recovery. What is the difference in the cost? So there is a, it's, it's more expensive in the beginning, um, because you have to buy the technology. And we looked at this in our own practice. And in the beginning, it's more expensive to do it robotically. But after you get through the learning curve and everybody is up to speed, then it ends up being less expensive. And it ends up being less expensive mostly because the length of stay in the hospital is less. So the typical length of stay for a patient having robotic heart surgery is three to four days in contrast to six days, sometimes seven days when it's done open. And the recovery to full full activity is usually three to four weeks as opposed to six to eight weeks. So everything is cut in half. I know you have a special interest in treating kids. Do you ever use robotic surgery on, on young children? We Well, I would say that they need to be a certain body size. So we've done robotic heart surgery in teenagers. And, you know, there are some teenagers that happen to be big and tall, and there are some that or too small, and it all comes down to what the what the lesion is. The abnormality in children that lends itself to the robot is a hole in the heart, and many of these holes can be closed in the cath lab with a catheter. But there are some where the hole's too big, and they can't. And those are the ones that we've done with the robot. So we've done a number of teenagers with the robot. They just need to. It's all a body size thing. They need to be big enough, and there are many that are. So the hole is inside the heart, between the chambers. Between the chambers, exactly, and they usually get closed with a patch. Can the robot get? Can the technology get better? Can the robot yes. get smaller? Yes, the technology can get better, and there is a lot of work going on in advancing the technology uh, to a point where it could be applied to you know smaller patients. So most of the kids that you operate on have a congenital abnormality. Is that correct? Yes, they're born with something that's abnormal. What's the, what's the youngest child you've ever operated on? Oh, we operate on newborn babies. You do? Oh, yes. And uh, you know, how do you know there's something wrong? Well, m- you know, many, uh, many mothers will have the benefit of prenatal ultrasound. So most of these defects are picked up with a prenatal ultrasound. They get followed during their pregnancy. And, you know, the, the ultrasounds that are done are actually can be quite good. I mean, you can get pretty good clarity of what you're dealing with so that you know what to expect after birth. And sometimes you know it's an, an anomaly that's going to require surgery in the first few days of life. And, or it may be an anomaly that can wait till they're six months old or maybe even later. How big is the heart in a newborn? About the size of a golf ball. And you use loops? I mean, you use magnification always, to work on these kids? Always. It's all pretty incredible, isn't it? Dr. Joe Durini, Chair of Cardiovascular Surgery at the Mayo Clinic, Minimally Invasive Heart Surgery and Robotic Heart Surgery, truly a major advance for multiple heart conditions. Less pain, quicker recovery, shorter hospital stay, higher initial cost, but long-term better. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Durini. Well, thank you you for having me again. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, a condition you may not have heard of, Samter's Triad. And Understanding Gender Identity. 
Coming up, a health minute with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. A torn rotator cuff doesn't happen to only professional athletes. It's a common cause of shoulder pain for many adults, and there are several ways to treat it, including surgery. Now, if you have rotator cuff injuries, you might notice pain in your upper arm near your shoulder. The rotator cuff consists of four muscles that turn into tendons that insert in your shoulder that help you raise the arm in the air. Dr. John Sperling, a Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon, says the tissue tends to degenerate as you age and eventually can lead to a tear in the tendon. Medication, injection, and physical therapy are the first lines of treatment. But if the pain persists, surgery is the next option. Now, the rotator cuff tear is like a hole in a pair of pants, he says. It's not going to heal itself on its own. So what the surgery involves is making three or four little incisions on the shoulder or one smaller incision on the top and sewing down the rotator cuff to the area where it tore off the bone. And another trend, particularly for large tears and for people with arthritis, is reverse shoulder replacement surgery. The concept is to put the ball where the cup is and the cup where the ball is, so you actually reverse the joint. Dr. Sperling says most patients experience between 90 to 95 percent pain relief after surgery. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. At Mayo Clinic, doctors who specialize in nose and sinus problems, they're called rhinologists. They treat people with nasal polyps, chronic sinusitis, tumors of the base of the skull, among a lot of other things. They're not just nose doctors. But there is one disease or a condition that they treat that I bet most people haven't heard of, including, well, including me. How about you? Nope, never heard of it. <laughs> it's called Samter's Triad. And here to tell us about it is the Division Chair of Rhinology at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Aaron O'Brien. It's great to have you back to the program. Thanks for having me again. So, Samter's Triad. It's something new. I don't remember learning about this when I went through medical school. So it's not new. Dr. Samter described it in 1968, but we have a new name for it that better describes what it is. And so the name we use now is aspirin exacerbated respiratory disease, which is a mouthful. Yeah. So the abbreviation is AERD. What are the symptoms and what, and what does all that stand for? This is someone who has bad asthma, nasal polyps, and then they react to aspirin or ibuprofen. And the reaction is they can take an ibuprofen or take an aspirin, and all of a sudden their asthma will flare or their nose will get stuffy or their eyes will water and get puffy. And it's not that the aspirin causes the disease. It's that taking that medication makes your symptoms worse. It seems hmm. like it's an allergy response. It would seem like it, but it's not allergic. And so that's a little bit different than we think of your allergies to cats or dogs or dust. For these people, they typically say they never had any trouble until they were in maybe their 30s or 40s, and all of a sudden they notice their nose is stuffy, then they can't smell as well, they can't breathe through their nose, then they get diagnosed with asthma, which is new to them, and that may go on for a couple of years, and all of a sudden, where previously they could take an aspirin or ibuprofen and not have any trouble, all of a sudden they take one and they have a horrible asthma attack or their nose gets stuffy. And for some of them, they end up in the emergency department or they have a really bad reaction, whereas it never caused trouble before. Hmm. So it's a new disease that 
they were fine, and then all of a sudden now they have it. Interesting that it doesn't show up until later in life. Occasionally we see teenagers, but yes, it's mostly a disease of middle age, and it's really frustrating for people because they say, I used to be fine, and now I have this disease. And what we found is it can take years for people to figure out that this is the disease they have. Either they don't usually take ibuprofen or aspirin, or they don't make the association. I had a patient who thought he had an allergy to the bowling alley because he would only get stuffy and have an asthma attack when he went bowling, and then we figured out every time he went bowling, he would take ibuprofen beforehand. So we figured that out. (laughs) Wait a second. What is the triad part of it? What makes it triad? It's those three things. They have asthma, they have polyps, and then they have that reaction. Okay. Those are the three. And how long after taking the aspirin, or it can be an NSAID too, right? Right. And it can be Alka-Seltzer or other things that people don't realize have ibuprofen or aspirin in them, cold medicine. And Um, how long after they take it does, does this happen and what exactly minutes are the to hours really minutes to hours yeah they may just get stuffy or their eyes may run or they may have a runny nose but for some it can be a really severe asthma attack and they can end up in the emergency department it must take a long time for medical professionals to figure out the patient's symptoms well since the reaction typically only happens if they take the medication if it's not something they take they may not know some healthcare providers aren't familiar with this, so they don't ask. We have a couple other clues. A lot of patients with this also react to beer and wine. So if they have a drink, they can get stuffy or they can have an asthma attack. And we have some lab work that we can also do now to help diagnose it if people are looking for it. There used to be a, a test called an aspirin challenge, didn't there? Do that's you still the, use that? That's what we consider the gold standard. So the the way that we always tested or the way people used to test was give someone an aspirin and see what happens. <laughs> oh my but that can be dangerous if your asthma is pretty bad. And most of these people have really severe asthma or really severe polyps. And for some of them, taking an aspirin may be potentially dangerous. So if we do that test, we do it at the hospital. We make sure their asthma is under good control. We do it in a controlled environment. That's still considered the gold standard But now we have some tests that we can run that can help us make the diagnosis, although it's maybe not as good as the aspirin challenge. And what about the nasal polyps? Do you take those out? We do take them out. So there are a lot of people with nasal polyps. I guess not a lot, but in my practice there are. Sure. Um, In the U.S., maybe 4% of people have polyps, but less than 1% total have AERD. When we take out polyps in the operating room, it's so that people can breathe better and smell and their sinus symptoms are better. If we send them to the lab, the pathology lab, they may not be able to tell under a microscope if someone has sort of routine chronic sinusitis with polyps or this more severe aspirin exacerbated respiratory disease. So we have some other clues that we can use from blood work and urine tests that can help us. If you have someone with polyps and and AERD, you take the polyps out and they avoid uh, aspirin, will the polyps not come back? Yes, they will still have a recurrence of polyps. Typically, people with AERD have the worst polyps, so we'll take it out and they will grow back. And on average, these patients may have three, six, or more surgeries in their lifetime to take polyps out because they come back. The challenge is we have to find out who has this disease so we can put them on the right medication to slow the polyps down. And there's uh, just a medication will do that? It's a combination of things, and sometimes finding the right combination is helpful. Now, it's frustrating because the polyps can still grow back despite being on nasal steroids or on certain oral medications that can help. 
And so we're trying to figure out who's going to respond to which, which medications and how to best control the disease. Now, is there a new drug? It's just come out. For there this was condition. a drug that was just approved by the FDA last month for nasal polyps. It's an injection that people can do at home under the skin every one to two weeks. It's called a biologic, and biologic is a big category of medications that are antibodies. Um, but this medication has been shown to decrease polyp size and improve asthma. It's the first injectable medication we have specifically for polyps. It just came out last month. Approximate cost is $37,000 a year. Ooh, that's a lot. Do you think that this will um, reduce your workload? Well, that's a question, <laughs> right? So that's very expensive, and we have to figure out who should have that injection versus the standard treatment right now, which is surgery. And then the other treatment which we do is called aspirin desensitization. This sounds counterintuitive, but yeah. if you give people with Stamter's Red or AERD high doses of aspirin, which we do after we take out all the pops and start out with a clean slate, high doses of aspirin, they are less likely to regrow their polyps. That doesn't make any sense. I know. I tell people it's not quite the same, but it's sort of like if you're allergic to cats and you get shots with cat okay. dander, mm-hmm. antigen, you're not going to react. It's not quite the same, and we don't know exactly how it works, but you take two aspirin twice a day, which is a lot. But for some people, they have a great response and they don't regrow their polyps. And that's certainly a lot cheaper than an injection you do every one to two weeks that costs $30,000 a year. Taking out nasal polyps, do you do that under general anesthesia? I do in the operating room. And we open up all the sinuses. We take the polyps out so that people Ooh, no, can get... Wait a get minute. You open up all the sinuses. How do you... Where does the incision go? We go through the nostrils with a camera. And a little instrument called a microdebreeder or little cutting instruments to take the polyps out. And those thin little bones in the sinuses, we make the holes bigger. And then people can use medication in the nose that will actually get into the sinuses now that everything's open. Dr. Aaron O'Brien, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss gender identity with a Mayo Clinic expert. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio and the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. LGBTQ. Q, yeah, throw that in there. Most people know what the letters stand for. Well, except for maybe Q. I I read the other day that it can stand for queer or questioning. But what do the terms really mean and why are there so many? And I have to tell you, when I was in medical school, it's a while ago, (laughs) none of these terms did we learn about. That's true. I'm so happy we're doing a program on it. Yes. Well, for the layperson and even for some people in the medical profession, all of those terms can be a little bit confusing. So here to help us sort it all out is an expert from the Division of Women's Health at Mayo Clinic in Arizona, Dr. Jewel Kling. She joined us by telephone. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Kling. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. All right, Dr. Kling, let's start from the top. LGBTQ. How do you explain them to the uninitiated, like myself, actually? Yeah, absolutely. And and before I do that, I'd just like to start by saying that I use she and her pronouns and consider myself cisgendered, and I identify as heterosexual. Um, so I am an ally to the LGBT community and, as such, help co-chair our employee resource group here at Mayo and so get the opportunity to talk to a lot of uh, people about what the letters mean. And probably it's easiest just to start by defining them. 
So the L is lesbian, the G is gay, the B is bisexual, the T is transgender, and the Q, as you discussed, can be queer or questioning. And in our employee resource group, we also use the letter I, which is intersex, which represents people that are born with a disorder of sexual development. I'm going to ask you to break down what you said when you introduced yourself. The pronouns that you use, I think we all understand, but you said that you are cisgender. Yeah, so cisgender would be the idea that when I was born, the doctor said, hey, you have a healthy baby girl, and I identify as female. So that means that my gender that I identify as is the same as the sex I was assigned at birth, which is opposite from transgender people, where there's a discrepancy between the sex assigned at birth and the gender that they identify as. I think the term assigned at birth is a big part of where the the confusion begins, because what people would say is, well, if you had a penis, you're male. If you didn't have a penis, you were female, and that's how we identified babies. But that's not necessarily true. Yeah, uh, you make a good point, and that really pulls in that intersex or the disorder of sex development. So there are conditions that um, babies are born with genitalia that don't represent the genetics or the genes that are consistent with that sex. So we think of XX as being female, but sometimes you can be born with XX and have a, a penis or genitalia that looks male. So that kind of puts that whole what you look like on the outside is the same as in the inside into question, uh, both from a biologic perspective, but then also kind of lays the groundwork for this idea of being transgender um, and really gets to the point that uh, gender is made up of multiple things. And many of us are taught or think of gender as just a binary, either you're male or you're female. But in fact, it's better to think of it as a spectrum That includes gender identity, which is how you feel, gender expression, what you wear or what you look like, um, and then biology. I think using more feminine versus more masculine gives you that idea of a spectrum. Sure, yeah. Um, And then you could kind of put people in those categories. Like uh, an example I will commonly share with people when I'm presenting on this is that although I'm cisgendered and I identify as female, When I was growing up with two younger brothers, I was a tomboy, and I dressed in big baggy shorts and big T-shirts, and so people would mistake me as male often. Um, So that dichotomy between kind of your gender identity and expression. You know, I, I have difficulty understanding gender identity because let's say that you're born with male genitalia, mm-hmm. um, but do people like that who are in a different category uh, feel like a female? And what's it like to feel like a female? I mean, how do you know what you whether your feelings are male or female? Well, it's it's a great question. I don't know if I have an answer, especially not being somebody who's transgender. I can't necessarily speak to that. And I think scientifically or medically, we don't have the specifics, but that is uh, what we call gender dysphoria. That's the diagnosis that we use, where people are born with genitalia like you're talking about, like a penis, but feel female. Um, and as I've talked to more transgender people, they just know. They're, they know from a young age, like, this, is, this body doesn't fit with the identity that I feel. Um, and then the goal of treatment is really to help uh, uh, alleviate that dysphoria. So whether that's um, just expression, where they can dress the the gender that they feel they are, 
or for many transgender people, that includes hormones, which help with the transition. Um, and then for some, it's surgery, either top or bottom surgery, to help their body be more congruent with the sex they identify as. I think some of the question about uh, surgical interventions or um, bottom surgery, for example, has to do with um, access to medical care and insurance coverage. Um, so if you look at the percentages of transgender people that actually undergo surgeries, it's pretty low. Um, but as more insurance companies start to cover those uh, procedures, more and more transgender people are choosing to undergo surgery. So really the, the reason that there are not more surgical procedures done uh, is because of insurance reasons, you, you presume? I think- I think that's probably a, a big thing. There, there may be access issues, and one of the issues that transgender people have faced for so long is a stigma and discrimination, especially from the healthcare uh, field. And so that's something that they have to overcome, and something that we're we're working with with our staff to make sure we're an inclusive environment. Why is it important for organizations like Mayo Clinic, healthcare organizations, to that this is on their radar? One of the things we talk about at Mayo is that diversity is really important to us and we want to provide a space that's inclusive and um, kind of comprehensive for everybody, including transgender people. They've uh, historically had experiences where they'll anticipate either being turned away overtly or being overtly discriminated upon by the healthcare team. Um, and so we want to make sure that from the get-go, when you call in to schedule, that um, somebody is not assuming you're a certain uh, sex based on something that you say, but having a two-step, uh, for example, two-step uh, identification process where you ask what's your sex assigned to birth and what's your gender identity. Um, having clues around the office, uh, visual cl- clues that make sure that our transgender patients know that they're in a safe environment. Do you think do you think there have always been transgender people? Yes. Because you know we never heard the term for for decades when I was growing up. Well, one of the things we talk about in our cultural competence is the the rate of transgender people because a lot of people are like, "Well, why do I have to learn about it? It's it's just a small percentage of people. I'm never going to see a transgender person." Um, but it turns out, as of 2016, this uh, self-identified population study uh, found that 0.58% of the U.S. population, or approximately 1.4 million people, identify as transgender. To um, make give a perspective, there's 1.2 million type 1 diabetics in the United States. Wow. And, and most people know what a type 1 diabetic is or know a type 1 diabetic. And so... Uh, the, the population is greater than one would assume, and I suspect as you're getting at, the more we talk about it, the more people that experience gender dysphoria or transgender will feel like they can come forward um, and pursue being the gender that they identify as. And we've talked about uh, sui- the rate of suicide is yeah. highest in the transgender population because they don't feel like right. they are accepted anywhere. The, right. the rates of attempted suicide among uh, transgender adolescents, alarming. Yeah, yeah. Is it in the 40% range? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's shocking and heartbreaking. Um, That's compared to like 2.4% in the general population. Um, And an important point there is when we talk about health disparities in the transgender population, to recognize that those disparities are mediated by social stigma and discrimination and are not inherent to being transgender. 
So just because you're transgender doesn't make you more likely to be depressed or attempt suicide. It's all the other things that you're dealing with from society and, you know, access to healthcare, all those type of aspects. All right. Thanks so much. Dr. Jewel Kling is an expert on women's health and gender identity. I think I know a little bit more than I did before. But, <laughs> I hope so. But it's a fairly complex subject, and hopefully, Dr. Kling, you'll join us again and uh, for further discussion on this topic. I'd love to. Thank you so much for covering this. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Kling. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.